Morning Glory and Evening Grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. It is the hour of Hillsdale. Hugh for Hillsdale.com. And once a week, I gather with either Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, or one of his esteemed colleagues. Last week, Dr. Paul Ray, as Boston was under siege, to talk about one of the great works of Western civilization and the news of the week when Dr. Arn can join us. And uh, we're lucky to have Larry Arn back with us, even though it's been a grim two weeks. Larry Arn, welcome. It is always a treat to talk to you. How you doing, Hugh? I'm good, and I, I don't know if Paul Ray had a chance to tell you, but as the uh, arrest of the suspect was underway last week, we were talking about the Athenians' use of terror against the Isle uh, of Milos and, and whether or not that invasion marked their descent into a calamitous collapse. And we'll come back to that. But it was a, it was a, it was a very somber and sober conversation because this has been a very awful couple of weeks. What, what has your reaction been as America has been struck again by Islamist terrorism? Well, my reaction is partly frustration and partly anger. Um, you know, we have to fight these guys, these, these people who, you know, there's an organized, semi-organized force of people who by a crazy zealotry want to murder a bunch of people they don't know and haven't done anything. And those people need killing, and so we need to kill them uh, if they form, if they constitute a threat to us. And so that's the anger part. And the frustration part is we should be all over that, right? Like we <laughs> we interviewed this fellow, and goodness, he's he's named after an Asian conqueror, and uh, and we had a warning about him apparently. Many warnings apparently. Yeah. yeah and so did we. You know, and there were some mistakes. Uh, in the Wall Street Journal today, there's an article about that, that, you know, he got back into the country because the, the watch list his, he was on, his name was misspelled, and his date of birth was stated wrong, and is that the, the problem of the airlines, or is that the problem of the FBI or Homeland Security or somebody? And one feels that we are bureaucratic in the way we go about these things. We've got this big old awkward government, and it's hard to coordinate it. So that's the frustration part. But, of course, you've got to be glad uh, they caught those guys and they killed them, except the one who's, you know, going to have a really rough time in life for a long time now. So that's good. Well, but let me ask you, what is the bigger picture? Uh, I have been listening to the new uh, Churchill volume by Paul Reed, who picked up the Manchester Project. And, of course, you know Churchill by heart, having worked on the official biography with Sir Martin Gilbert. But at the beginning of that volume, I'm reminded that when England had its Chamberlain, it was followed by Churchill. The United States had Bush, whose library opened yesterday, and he's been followed by Obama. It's almost the flip of what happened in Great Britain when they were threatened by an existential threat. And I, I just wonder how we could have possibly ended up making this choice. Uh, well, I, I'll say one thing about that. Um, it it uh, we, we don't do a good job. In, this is some Churchill advice. We don't do a great job focusing our defense policy on the security of the United States. And I don't mean to fault George Bush II about this, because I think he actually did in his speeches often say the right things, and, and he meant the right things. But it has to be every, every speech should begin and end with what this does for the American people and every dollar that's spent in defense has got to be related to that closely. I think people want that, and Churchill was deeply aware of that. He always tried to do everything connected to, to defense 
as cheaply as it could possibly be done and is directly connected to the interests of Great Britain as he could make them. And I think we failed in that regard, and so we're fighting this big war, and it goes on and on for a long time. It comes to look like a welfare program for Iran, I'm sorry, Iraq, and, and people got tired of it, I think, and I think to some extent they were right to do it. Well, in the Manchester Reed volume, there's an argument made that Churchill hated no one as much as he hated Hitler, of course, but also the left-wing intellectuals, because the left-wing intellectuals were unfair to the argument, and they were unfair to Britain, and they endangered Britain. I think we have the same problem, Larry Arne, in terms of what happens, what gets in the way of our understanding the problem. And I, I, you can turn on right now any of the networks, and with the exception of Jake Tapper, or maybe Brett Baer, and occasionally Sean you're not going to hear any serious conversation about this. You're going to hear uh, chatter. Yeah. And, you know, that was, you know, what was it like in the 1930s? Winston Churchill had a miserable 1930s. He was hit by a taxi and nearly killed. It set laid up for months. He lost his money in the American stock market twice in the two greatest crashes, still two of the four greatest crashes in history. He got typhoid and was laid up for months. His party turned against him. He nearly went broke. And and it was foolishness. You know, the, here's the story. I'll show you how ugly politics always are. There was a man named Wigram who was in the Foreign Office, and he was giving Winston Churchill information because uh, he was the head of the central office of the Foreign Office, the part that deals with Germany. And he was getting the cables from, from British uh, diplomats in Germany. And Germany was up to atrocious things, and they were reported, and they weren't told to the public. And so Wigram started giving them to Churchill, a member of parliament, and they went to threaten uh, Wigram. Wigram had a child with a disability, I think Down syndrome. And so a man, Walter Runciman, went to visit Ava Wigram in the daytime when his hus- her husband was at work to mention that if, that if her husband kept communicating with Churchill, he might be transferred somewhere where the medical care wouldn't be good. Wow. So he had plenty of problems with conservatives and socialists alike. And his response was to argue brilliantly about that. And the reason to take hope is, against you know, another thing they did to Churchill is they attempted, they, and to, with some considerable success, to get people not to publish Churchill, which is the way he made his living. And so in 1938, he's looking at getting out of politics because he can't afford to stay in anymore. And he got rescued in various ways. But while all that is upon him, and against the whole force of a government of his party, with no friendship from the opposition, he argued them down. And so eventually the policy was reversed, and they began, not quickly enough, to rearm. And so... Yeah, these people say these things, and they're very powerful. Churchill was excluded from speaking on the BBC, except rarely. And and all of those things that are going on today were going on then. But it turned out the British people had a serious measure of common sense, and the facts gradually became plain. So that's the remedy. Larry Arndt, you, you raise a question here I want to pose to you. Uh, you said Churchill was rescued by a couple of people. And one of the reasons I always encourage people to support Hillsdale College is I think you're raising up a generation of Churchills who will be absolutely necessary. But I wonder if there's anyone in politics right now who you think needs rescuing for our friends, who needs to be 
brought back, if not rehabilitated, propped up, supported, who's under heavy weather? Uh, yeah, who would I say that of? Um, you know, I, 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 I don't, I, no name springs to mind right now. I, I think about the excellent ones. You know, for example, somebody ought to get Dan Quayle back into politics. He doesn't really need rescuing. I think he's doing very well, and he's a great guy. And he should be Secretary of Defense sometime. That's very smart. He's, You're absolutely he's a right. Brilliant guy. He and is. I think I think Steve Forbes. I I kept trying to get the Bush administration with my little influence to make Steve Forbes Secretary of the Treasury, and you know they kept getting these guys from Goldman Sachs instead, and you know the the history of 2008 would have been different if they had appointed him. Now I've got to play for you from Wednesday, Vice President Biden at the memorial service for an MIT officer, just to get your reaction to it, as opposed to the great rhetoric of which you spoke. Here's Joe Biden. I get asked, like my colleagues, almost every day since 9-11, why? 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 This terrorist phenomenon of the late 20, the 21st, the beginning of the 21st century. Why? People say to me, for they surely know they can never defeat us. They can never overthrow us. They can never occupy us. So why? Why? Whether it's Al-Qaeda central out of the Fatah or two twisted, perverted, cowardly knockoff jihadis. What do you think about that, Larry, or in 30, 45 seconds to the break? Well... Uh, the problem of despotism and of violence in politics is age-old. It goes with humans. And so we should be prepared for it and not like act like it's some accident that emerges. A free people must be characterized by the courage to stand up against that, recognize it when they see it, and be ever ready to combat it. Yeah, I don't actually think the why is so hard. I'm just... Yeah. I'm terribly... <laughs> terribly worried that the vice president has to wonder why. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale. Go to HughForHillsdale.com for all of the Hillsdale dialogues or to HughHewitt.com. Stay tuned. 21 minutes after the Hour America, it's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College. Once a week, I join with Dr. Arn or one of his colleagues from the Hillsdale uh, college community to talk about one of the great classics of Western civilization. It's our way of leading you into the weekend on a good plane, thinking great thoughts. And we have spent four weeks, three with Dr. Arn, one with his colleague, Dr. Paul Ray, on the uh, history of the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides. And uh, this week we conclude that conversation, which has been wonderful. But we have to go from the destruction of, uh, of Melos or Milos to the end of the war, Dr. Larry Arn. And after the Melian Dialogue, the Athenians go on a rampage and they go off to Syracuse. Can you begin our conversation by charting what happens in the second half of the Peloponnesian War? Well, there, there are three subjects to talk about, to talk about the end of the war and how it came out. And they are uh, a man, Alcibiades, and... Athens and Sparta, and under the category Athens and its failings, you have to mention Syracuse. Uh, it, it, it might be good to... And so what happened was, the early part of the war, the Athenians did very well, and all of the advantages that Pericles mentions in his funeral oration and other places proved to be theirs. And they can go where they want to and strike when they want to, 
And all Sparta can do is go ravage the farms of Athens, upon which Athens doesn't really depend. And, you know, the plague broke out soon, but that didn't bring Athens down either. So it goes very well, and they have a peace. And Athens, it has several problems. One I mentioned now, Athens is both ambitious and inconstant. And that's a deadly combination. They decide to send the largest navy they assembled, ever assembled by the Athenians in the ancient world, which means one of the largest ever until the Romans and the, and the, and sorry, and Carthage before those two. And they took it to attack Syracuse with an idea that they would then go on to Italy. And at the time they made that decision in the public assembly, they didn't actually know how large this place was where they were going. And off they sailed. And then uh, uh, those who opposed it did what is often done, was often done in Athens, and that is they brought charges against Alcibiades, who's one of the most vivid and vibrant figures in all of human history. Uh, pause for a moment. Uh, uh, Stephen Pressfield, who's a wonderful friend of this program and comes down whenever he puts out another wonderful book and we talk about it, wrote a book, uh, a novel about Alcibiades called The Tides of War. Have you ever read that? I have. Isn't it wonderful? <laughs> it's great. It's great. <laughs> and you know, when you read that book, you find yourself writing down things that are superb practices yes. for any human being, right? Because yes. Alcibiades is this guy. You have to remember, first of all, that Alcibiades occurs in, is a figure in five of the Socratic dialogues, and two of them, maybe one apocryphal, is named after him. And Socrates, in his trial, which we'll get to in these dialogues, is actually accused of being responsible for Alcibiades' crimes. He is one of the great figures of history, and he is one of the people who persuades the Athenians to go and attack Syracuse. And he's a very, very beautiful. One of his, uh, one of one of his admirers says of him, of his appearance, that if Achilles did not look like him, then Achilles was not handsome. Wow! Awesome guy, right? Yep. Beautifully spoken, courageous, brilliant general and admiral. One almost all the time. Well, they don't. A lot of people in Athens don't like this thing, and so they bring charges against Alcibiades. But they decide not to press the charges until the fleet, this magnificent fleet, irreplaceable in its size and competence, has sailed. Now he's gone. Then they can prosecute him for malfeasance. And sure enough, they get there, and then ships go from Athens, following to call him back to face the charges. So they send this mighty force and immediately deprive it of its most able admiral and general and advocate. So that's Athens. They do things like that all the time. But why is this the... the uh, boy, boy, it sounds very much like Bush and Iraq and many other things uh, are ringing in my ears, but why did they hate him in Athens, those who had been left behind? Well, they didn't all, but his enemies did. And why did they hate him? Because people hate people, and especially very powerful and vivid people. And this guy's about to prove that, you know, he's to be both hated and feared. Because he doesn't go back to Athens. He defects to Sparta. And he begins to give them huge advice about how to attack 
Athens, which eventually they take. Now, what about that, Larry Arn? You would have nothing but contempt for an American who turns sides or for Alger Hiss, or who was himself a wonderfully talented creature of privilege at the top of the American spectrum who immediately went over to the Soviets and sold us down the road. And then we've got many. Benedict Arnold is not known as Benedict Arnold for no reason at all. What did you think of Alcibiades doing this? That was very bad. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, thank God. In the Tides of War, that novel you mentioned, I I think it's more than we actually know, but Pressfield has got a wonderful imagination. And, you know, has a a, a serious knowledge of these things he recreates in fiction. He describes Alcibiades in Sparta, and he's not the brilliantly dressed, arrogant, handsome young man. He's wearing simple clothes and walks around with his head down all the time. You know, I remember that so well. How interesting that you would call that up. You know, because he he is like the people he's attempting to lead, and and he persuades the Spartans to send the uh, relief force, which is one guy. That's what they would that they would send an extremely (laughs) able man whose name was I always get it wrong. It's not Glycippus. It's Gly something. And, uh, I'm not going to come up with the name. You've come well, to the wrong people. place. I'll, I'll just look at I'll just look see. Spartan, I'm going to look on my, who, it's terrible. It's a terrible mental block. I've known the name of this guy for 30 years. Well, I could have known it for 40, and I'd still mispronounce it. A-C-U-S-E, yeah. No, it's, it's not a very hard name, actually. Um, and Alcibiades uh, is coming. Persuades them to send this fellow. and And with many... Uh, ups and downs, he gets them organized. And the effect of this is, and you know, the, the, the Athenians are now commanded by Nicias, a great gentleman, not much of a commander. And they sail around from place to place, and they try to persuade cities to come to their aid, and they besiege Syracuse itself, the main city, and almost take it. But it's a story of too little, too late. And they end up, I mean, you, the, the, the devastation of it is, you, you can't believe it, it's one of the worst things that ever happened. They're trapped in a harbor. And the Syracusans and, and everybody in the neighborhood have assembled a naval force and a land force. And the Athenians launch a major assault to try to break out of this bay that they're trapped in. And when we come back from break, we're going to tell you what happens when the Syracuse expedition, it's 413 B.C., as this comes to its climax, with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, as we continue in the Hillsdale Dialogues here on the Hugh Hewitt Show. 34 minutes after the hour, American Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, in the latest of our continuing series of Hillsdale Dialogues. As we talk about the great works of Western literature, we are spending our last week on the history of the Peloponnesian Wars by Thucydides, and we are talking about Athens' ill-fated uh, invasion of Syracuse, and and we went to break just as the Athenians were rallying for their final assault on the city. And the Spartan uh, relief force is named Gylippus, <laughs> and uh, he's really great, right? And they they break themselves trying to get out of the harbor. They can't get out. They abandon their ships and they go inland, and they run out of water. And they, 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 they hasten as best they can, and they're now dying of thirst and disorganized and demoralized. And they get to a river, and 
the, the, the Syracusans are waiting for them, and they surround them, and they kill very many of them. And they're by now split into two forces. They capture them both, and they put them all in the bottom of a rock quarry. And they make them live down there, surrounded by stone with archers on the top. And they lower down baskets to let people up to torture them. And if you don't get in the basket, they kill a bunch of people with archery. And it's terrible. They knock their teeth out. They do awful stuff. And, and th- th- this whole Athenian force, all of the ships are broken up and destroyed, and only rare stragglers ever make it back to Athens. And meanwhile, their leading general and leading spirit, Alcibiades, uh, a protege, by the way, of Pericles and seen to be his successor in brilliance, is advising the Spartans. And so that's Syracuse. And that, that comes, at a, the, the Syracuse expedition comes at a time when Athens has more or less won the first round, and there's a peace, a hostile, nervous peace in place. And they weaken themselves drastically by overreaching. Then breaks out trouble in the empire because, and it's, it's worth it to talk, oh, by the way, I should mention the Alcibiades story. The Spartans eventually turn on him, and so he defects to the Persians. To the Persians, yep. Off he, he goes. And he has counseled the Spartans not only to relieve Syracuse, but to open negotiations with Persia. So you see, the two main Greek cities are fighting each other, and the Persians that they had defeated a generation earlier now become stronger, and they become the make-weight or the balance in this war for the rest of the war. And it's Alcibiades who persuades the Spartans to open negotiations with them and also hastens and urges the Spartans on their course of building a navy. And that changes Sparta very much. So as Athens is busy by changing policy, destroying itself, the Spartans are changing their nature in ways that will alter them, finally. And they're building a navy, and they're making a deal with Persia. And then darned if Alcibiades doesn't get in trouble in Sparta and defect to the Persians. But that's not the end of it, because he gets in trouble with the Persians, and he finds a way to rejoin his native Athens. Athens. So it's not like what, you know, you know like Benedict Arnold. It's no. like Benedict Arnold, you know, went, went to the British and came back to us. Why do you, you know, hey, I hope, has Pressfield been to Hillsdale? No. Boy, I would pay cash money to watch you and Pressfield talk about Alcibiades for a long time. But, and, and I know he listens, so I hope he's listening tonight. We'll figure out how to make that happen. But, but. Why is guy, by the way, I say that to him. He, he is a terrific fellow. But why don't most Americans and most moderns know about this most incredible individual? Well, Pressfield has helped us with that. But, uh, but it, it's partly because we don't, uh, you know, it's because we live in an age, a little bit of a philosophic point, but because we live in an age where we think that everything is trends and large forces and technology, we forget the what Churchill called the sublime responsibility of men and the profound significance of human choice. Once you start thinking 
it's what people do that makes a big difference, and we are responsible for things, then you start looking to great and vivid people. And you, you also think that across the ages, you have to look to find such people because they're rare. And so there was a day, you know, Plutarch's day, the height of Rome, the height of Britain, much of American history, where everybody learned about these heroes. And when that is actually what we're doing on the Hillsdale Dialogues, and when we fall into Plutarch, it will be a long time till we climb out, and a good climate will be. It won't be like the quarry pit at Syracuse, which, by the way, for the Steelers fans' benefit, is Sicily, right? I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn on the Hillsdale Dialogue. Stay tuned. 44 minutes after the Hour America, all of the Hillsdale Dialogues to which you're listening this week's installment with Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College are available at the Hillsdale Dialogues page at hillsdale.edu or via hughhewitt.com or directly at hugh4hillsdale.com. Dr. Larry Arn, um, this is our last segment talking about the Peloponnesian War, and it's eight minutes, so I want to sort of turn the floor over to you to wrap it up as best you can. It's, it really requires months, but uh, you have eight minutes. Athens, um, in its throes, as it begins to make these terrible mistakes and the war turns against it, Athens abandons its century-long political system of popular rule and becomes an oligarchy, the rule of the 400. Thucydides regards that as a devastating step and a sign of fundamental misarrangement in the body politic. Uh, the 400 eventually give way to 5,000, and nobody really ever knows who the 400 or the 5,000 are, but the point is oligarchs are running the place now. And Athens' fundamental mistake should be named. You read the Melian Dialogue last week, and you have to understand that one of the claims that the, that the Athenian diplomats make to the Melians, or the soldiers, is that justice is the interest of the stronger, that might makes right. And this is the, the doctrine, the, the, the question that Socrates refutes to give rise to the Republic. It's the first major controversy in the Republic. And there's a, there's a sophist there teaching ambitious young men that strength is the cause of right. And Socrates is able to refute that. And that means that going on in Athens, in Socratic philosophy and in the school of Plato, is something that might have been a cure to this willfulness that ran away from them and destroyed them. And the Melian Dialogue is written almost like it's part of that question, that claim from Thersimachus that if you're strong, justice is whatever you want it to be. So that's a fundamental uh, wrong written in the heart of Athens. Now, the war went on for a long time after this because of weaknesses in Sparta, because they were slow to, make, to take up their advantages. And, and the, in fact, the, the Peloponnesian War, the history, doesn't, it doesn't make it to the end of the war. But, it, but, but the things are in place when it ends that show how the war ends. And what happened was, with an alliance between Persia and Sparta, now with the navy, and with the Athenian navy reconstituted, still powerful but weaker, they have a fight up around the Dardanelles, where Churchill fought and lost, in the Hellespont, near what we call Turkey now, and between Turkey and Greece. And 
at the Battle of Agapotami, which is a the Potamos's river, so they, they were they were drawn up near a river near the shore, and the Athenian navy is destroyed, and that's how the war ends because Athens can't go on without its you know it, it has lost the biggest navy any Greek city ever had or Persian, and it builds another one that's still very strong, and it loses that too. Hmm. And Alcibiades, by the way, was on the scene, and the sources say, some of them and some of them not, that he gave them the advice not to fight the battle here, but to move somewhere else where they had more options. So perhaps if he had been in command, then it might have been different. And that means that it was the vices of Athens that destroyed it, and the failures of leadership that stem from those vices. But of course, Alcibiades himself was a personification of those vices. Brilliance, changeability, immoderation. Now, a- after it's over, the real, the, the person who, the, the, the nation that gained from this was Persia. And Persia is a factor in, in, uh, Greek affairs. It's not like Sparta ascends to the leadership of all Greece and has a long reign there. First of all, it's not very good at it. Uh, they're not very dashing. They don't move very fast. They don't move around very well, although they are changed by having a navy in ways that affect their polity. So, so th- that happens, but there's never a time when Sparta enjoys or, or, or the Greek cities themselves, enjoy the dominance that they collectively had for about 30 years after the Persian Wars, because the Persians are made stronger again by their division. And we enter into a long period of the rise of Rome and Carthage, and, and to a certain extent, they destroy the entire region. Is that a correct way to say it? Well, you miss out Macedon and Alexander and Philip who really, they themselves, reduced the Greek city-states to the polis, the polis, to servitude, or to, they're not independent anymore once Philip is done with them. And that, and, and then, you know, Alexander goes on his great conquests and conquers Persia, and that doesn't last very long. He dies young. But it's the, so there's an intervening step. The dominance of Macedon leaves the Greek states pray to the Romans. But do you teach much of the, I mean, it is interesting, and, and Pressfield comes to our aid again with Alexander, if for people who wish to follow the, the course of the story, but but do you teach much of, of Philip or of Alexander at Hillsdale, or do you go sure. from the great time of, of, of Greece and the playwrights and the philosophers, which we're turning to next week with Plato, or do you pause a while and, and talk about, I don't even know what you would read for Philip and Alexander. Well, um, you know, Plutarch. Okay. But, uh, yeah, but, you know, the story is, there isn't the great historian to tell that story. And so you're right to say the texts are not as good. But, of course, you have to tell the story and understand what it means. And, you know, Alexander's generals rule much of the Middle East and, and the Greek peninsula for a long time after that until the Romans replaced them. So it's a story worth telling, and you know, some of it, by the way, is is uh, it reaches almost to biblical times. But right? before we before we do that, next week we are going to tarry quite a while in the golden age of Greek philosophy and and play 
uh, uh, rights. So don't miss next week on the Hillsdale Dialogues as we begin with Plato and Dr. Larry Arnn. Thank you, Dr. Larry Arnn. You're listening to The Hugh Hewitt Show.